morning. It has certainly been one of those weeks where uh, we have a, a lengthy sick list, uh, but especially this week, our sympathy list has extended our sick list, and we've had a, a rough week with losing a lot of folks that are friends and family members, a lot of people that we care about, but we're good, glad to see you this morning. It's good to be together. It's the kind of encouragement we need for those who are able to be out as we go uh, through this life. When we have one of those weeks where we seem to lose a lot of our dear loved ones, it's the encouragement that we take in Christ, even as we were able to share at our brother's son's funeral on Friday. It comes from the hope that we have, that common love, that common bond, the common hope that is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's the hope that we share that is found in Christ. That gives us the encouragement that we need to continue through this life even as we lose dear loved ones. We're thankful for the beautiful flowers that were shared up here. I feel like I need to say that maybe for those who are online as I may dance around them up here a little bit. Or if you hear a crash or a bang online, I may kick them over before it's all said and done with. But we'll do our best to avoid that. We're glad that you're here. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you be turning to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew chapter 28, and we'll go there in just a moment. But we're, we're thankful that you're here. And we're thankful for the time to study God's Word together for just a few moments. You know, last week we talked a little bit about the birth of Jesus. And we talked about the fact that many people will just consider the birth of Jesus simply in the month of December or around the holiday of Christmas. And we talked a little bit about how that's not exactly the way the Bible portrays the birth of Christ or how the Bible expects us to, to celebrate the birth of Christ. One of the things the Bible does tell us to commemorate and not to commemorate just one month a year or even one day a year is the death and the burial of Christ. As we think about, even as we did a few moments ago, partaking of those emblems and thinking about his sacrifice. But you know, one of the great realities of the gospel is also the resurrection. We're going to talk about it in just a moment as we conclude, but even as Charles said, many other religions can't claim that resurrection of their so-called leader. But we want to talk this morning about the reality of the resurrection for a few moments and think about the importance of it, that it's not just one day a year. You see, a lot of times this sermon may be preached around the holiday that we call Easter in the spring that always takes place. But it's not something, the resurrection, that we should consider just once a year. We con should consider Christ's life all the time. It should, should be a part of our everyday life. And so in Matthew chapter 28, we read one particular account, beginning in verse number 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. 
You see, what's interesting as we consider this idea of the resurrection is this is one of the most important things, one of the most important events. But in reality of just resurrections in general, it's not the first. You know, when we think about the Bible, it's not that Jesus can claim to be the only one to be resurrected. We think about Lazarus. Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. We think about the daughter of Jairus or Jairus who was resurrected from the dead. But you see the difference is both of those folks died again. And Jesus didn't do that. He was resurrected but he did not die again. But he's certainly not the first when we think about this idea of the resurrection. So this morning I think it would be beneficial for us if, if we begin and start on some common ground. You know there's some people that don't believe in Jesus. There's some people who would say that he never existed. I don't think that's that often anymore. When we think about our world today, most people believe in Jesus, that that he existed. But there are some people who would say he didn't. And so on your notes there, if you have them in front of you, it's mentioned the fact that, uh, that there are some infidels. Well, infidels is a term that you might find probably in your King James Version, if you have one, to simply say unbelievers. Uh, infidels, unbelievers, and believers. There's some things that, that people can agree upon. And so let's just begin there. The first thing we might say is that Jesus lived. You see, most folks would agree that a man named Jesus lived and rose to prominence in the area of Palestine. Around Nazareth, around Galilee, Galilee he was a man, and he, he lived, and he rose to prominence. He had crowds that began to follow him, and people that, that wanted to be near him, and we try to imagine what it would have been like to, to see that. I oftentimes say the closest I can think of is the, somewhat the paparazzi that we have today and the, the athletes or the, the uh, actors and actresses who have just you know, 10, 15, 20, sometimes even hundreds of people around them following them trying to take their picture. It's hard to imagine the, the crowds that were with him and the throng that was often pressing on him. But most people would agree that Jesus was a man who lived and rose to prominence in the area of Palestine. Most people would also agree that around the age of 33, after about 33 years on this earth, he rose to such a prominence that he was causing a problem for certain leaders. And so they were going to take him and they were going to hang him on a Roman cross. And most people would agree with that. And most people would agree with the fact that he was thought, at least thought, to be dead. I'm going to ask you to stick a little pen there and remember that because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But not only did he hang on a cross, but he was at least thought to be dead by many people. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Carrying on a little bit further, most people agree that he was laid in a tomb. Jesus' body was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, as we read about in the Bible. Most people would say, yeah, that happened. We, we watched him or we know even people who were fairly close to that time, you know, we may have known people who talked about that event. He hung there. He was at least thought to be dead. And then he was laid, his body was taken, and it was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But let's go a little further. Most people would also say as well that, that, great, that a great stone was rolled in front of the door of that tomb. And, as is commonly thought, it was sealed meaning that it was some type of maybe wax seal. We think about that happening a lot in, in Old Testament times. Letters were sealed with wax and maybe a signet ring was pushed into it, the, the ring of the governor. And so not only was a great stone rolled in front of the door of the tomb that he was laid in, but it was sealed as well. And not only that, but it was kept on, of guard of somewhere between 16 to 50, or excuse me, 15 
to 60, get my numbers transposed, 15 to 60 men. When we think about what we know about the Romans and their guards and their common practices, he would have been under watch of a guard of somewhere between 15 and 60 men. But not only that, most people would agree that after the third morning, his body was missing. The great stone was laid in front of the door. The the seal was placed there. The guard was placed there. But after the third morning, his body was missing. Now stop there for just a moment because this is what's really going to be the focus of the rest of our lesson. Because what we might agree on is his body was not there. People could walk up. There were people there. We just read the account. But his, his body was not there. Now what happened after that? Well, that's going to be what we're going to discuss this morning. You see, his disciples came to believe with an unshakable faith. We're going to come back to that in just a moment as well. But his disciples began to believe with an unshakable faith that he was raised from the dead by the power of God and he was the Savior of the world. Well, this is where then, of course, the disagreement begins. This is where we begin to have problems with a lot of people because we might agree with unbelievers or even those who believe but aren't faithful to the cause of Christ, a lot of those things that we just discussed. But this is where the disagreement begins to happen. What happened? If we agree the body was missing, what happened to the body of Jesus? Well, I would submit for your thinking this morning that there are only four possible answers. That's what we're really going to examine. When we think about the reality of the resurrection, the body is not there, what could have happened? And there are four possible answers we'll look at here together. Number one, Was he not dead? His body is missing, so is it possible that he wasn't actually dead? Now, if you do research on this, or you read about it, or you see what other people have to say, many folks will call this the swoon theory, that maybe he just lost consciousness, that he was hanging on the cross, and he lost consciousness, they took his body down, they laid it in the tomb, and then at some point, he regained consciousness, and then he was able to just sleep, and he was gone. Now, you know, we, we've seen that in the movies, right? We always watch some of those action movies and the bad guy that, you know, you think the good guy is killed and he's laid there and then all of a sudden he appears again. He was just unconscious for a few moments. Well, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. But that's what some people think about. Was he not dead? I would submit a few things for your thinking. Number one, think about the torture that he endured. I don't know a better word for it than that. I've told you before, many people don't want to hear about that. I've had women, at least one woman before, get up and leave during a sermon on the cross and the crucifixion because it's a lot to take in. It bothers us. I mean, you know, we don't like to watch videos or movies a lot of times where where people are, are, you know, tortured. We don't want to think about that, but he was, essentially. And so I, I would cause you to think for just a moment. It's hard to imagine after the torture that he went through and everything that he suffered not just in the crucifixion or on the cross, but prior to that. We know about the scourging. We know about the suffering. He was stressed to the limit, not just in that moment, but even from the night before. He was probably dehydrated. He probably had a greater loss of blood than than any of us can ever imagine from that scourging. In fact, many of you know that it is a simple fact that most people did not make it to the cross because of the scourging and the beating, and the blood loss, and the dehydration. So I I have a hard time believing that he was not quite dead. 
because of everything that he suffered. That he could then be taken from the cross and then later, that he would be taken down from the cross alive and then later rise again. But let's go even a little bit further, maybe, for just a second. It was actually against Roman law to take someone off the cross who was not yet dead. It was against Roman law. So was he not dead and they took him down still alive? Seems unlikely. You know the story, right? Oftentimes they would break their legs so that they were not able to breathe anymore. They weren't able to lift themselves up by their feet to breathe. They'd break their legs so that's not possible and they would, would suffocate. Sometimes they would stab them so that they would die. Sometimes they would beat them on their chest according to uh, what we read about in history. And one that I learned about through this lesson and studying was sometimes they would even set a fire at their feet so that they died from asphyxiation, smoke inhalation. That was another way, but they had to make sure that they were dead in order to take them off the cross. So it was against Roman law. So was he not dead? Again, it seems unlikely. But let's go a little bit further. The soldiers knew that he was dead. Well, how do we know that? Well, if you still have your Bible in front of you, look with me at John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 34. John records for us, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews are wanting the body down. The Jews asked Pilate that their, here's what we said, their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So let's set the other things for aside for a moment. The soldiers knew he wasn't dead. But let's even go further. Look in your Bible at Mark's account. Mark chapter 15, verses 43 through 45. Mark 15, 43 through 45. Here's where Joseph of Arimathea enters again to the picture. A prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate, and what does he do? He asks Pilate for the body. Verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was, what? He was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. In verse 45, so when he found out from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. You see, the soldiers knew he was dead. So when it comes to the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, and the body is missing, was the fact that he was not dead? It seems highly unlikely. Let's go further. Number two, did his enemies take the body? Did his enemies take the body? Well, the first question that's begged from that is why? I mean, they had him right where they wanted him. Right? He had stirred up so much trouble that on that evening and over that weekend they're going to take him and they're going to crucify him. They had him right where they wanted him. So what would be the point or the need in taking the body? In fact, let's go again to Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 12, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, because the body is missing, we agree upon that, the body's missing, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they said themselves that the disciples had taken the body. So, I mean, why would his enemies do it and then go forward and try to say that the disciples did it? And think about this for just a moment. Think about this point. All they had to do was show his body to end the Christian movement. Don't forget what's happening here. The, Jesus has caused them trouble. He's given them so much trouble that they want to crucify him, and they do. But, not, but 50 days after that crucifixion and resurrection, in Acts chapter 2, the Christian movement begins. The church begins and begins to flourish So much so that it takes on a name. They begin to call it the way. We know that Jesus claims in John chapter 14 to be the way. But going forward in the book of Acts, you may recall specifically in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is said to have been trying to find people of the way or this way. They had taken on a whole movement. They had begun preaching Jesus to people. And it's causing these Jewish leaders trouble. So much trouble that they keep calling them in and threatening to beat them and putting them in prison. If you're a Jewish leader and you're an enemy of Jesus and you're an enemy of these so-called Christians, what would you have to do? Because what are they preaching? They're preaching the death, burial, and resurrection. If they're preaching the resurrection because the body is gone and you've got it hiding in the back closet, all you've got to do is bring it forth and show it And you can debunk their myths. You can say you guys have nothing to stand on. People stop following them. They're a bunch of liars. So did the enemies take the body? Well, it's hard to say that. Because here we are. 2,000 years later. Still pushing on through this movement. Still sharing the resurrection with the world. And they could have stopped it if they had just brought the body out. If they were the ones who had took it. Why didn't they do it? They didn't take the body. We know that. But let's go further. Number three, some people say, well, his disciples must have taken the body. Well, let's think about that for just a few moments. We already read Matthew 28 just a few moments ago, verses 10 uh, through, verses 12 through 15, where we talk about that's their plan. They bring the soldiers in. They say, just tell everybody that his disciples did it while you guys were sleeping. And then we will even pay the governor you want to talk about uh, political back, backdoor deals and things going on, we're not, we won't go there too deep this morning. But, but they say, we'll even pay the governor off, all right, so that you guys don't get hurt. Because do you know what was also punishable by death by the Romans? Well, for a, a soldier to sleep on duty. Right, just tell them you guys were asleep, and the disciples snuck in, they rolled this large stone away, and then they went with his body. But... You guys, even though you'd be punishable by death, we'll pay the governor off and then you won't. You won't have to die. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And so that's the plan that they concoct because of this. But let's go a step further once again. How unlikely is it that all of those soldiers would have just fallen asleep anyway? You know, the Roman soldiers that we're talking about would have been the best in the world. I mean, we would refer to them today as similar to special forces. Uh, We appreciate and love our special forces folks, uh, our military folks that go out and do some of the hardest and toughest assignments that there are. That's who's guarding the tomb by all accounts and what we can understand from Roman history. This is the best in the world. So how likely is it that between 15 and 60 of the, the most elite special forces in the world 
all fell asleep at the same time. I'm sure some soldiers fall asleep. Some soldiers fall asleep on purpose because they sleep in shifts. So that one person at least is awake and is on guard. So how likely is it that 15 to 60 elite soldiers just happen to all fall asleep at the same time and they're all so deep in sleep? I mean, what, they just had Thanksgiving dinner or what are we thinking here? That they would have fallen so deep into sleep that the apostles could have snuck in, rolled the stone away and took his body. If his disciples took his body, that's kind of, that's kind of the situation we're talking about. But let's go further again. Think about this. When we extrapolate it out and think about what else occurred, why? Why would these men then go forward and die for the cause if they simply took the body of Jesus? You know, someone has said before that people don't die for a lie. Peter's already done it. Do you remember what happened to Peter around that fire that night as they're getting ready to put Jesus on trial? They ask Peter, and they say, aren't you with him? And Peter says, hmm, my options here are to admit it and to die with him or to deny him. And Peter says, well, I'll deny him in a heartbeat. Now, Peter doesn't end there. We know that Peter comes back. He's forgiven. Peter begins to do so many great things. In fact, history records for us that that Peter was put in prison and on trial and and threatened by death. And Josephus, I believe it is, even records for us that, that Peter was crucified for claiming to follow Jesus. But he was crucified upside down because he said, do not put me on the cross and and crucify me the same way as my Lord. I'm not worthy of that. But even Peter at one moment said, my choices are to die or to deny, and I think I'll just deny. Peter's already done it. So why would these men go further when they're threatened with death with just a lie? I'm sure at least one of them would have broken and said, well, you know what? His body's just back up here in somebody's house. Just please don't kill me. His body's over here. We took it. It was, you know, we we, we took it. It's over here. Threatened with hot oil, being burned to death with hot oil. Threatened with having animal skins wrapped around them and then fed to the lions. Death because of a lie. Uh, Most of us would agree we're weak enough. We certainly would have given in. Well, we just took it. Don't worry. Don't kill me, please. But yet, these men continued to press on. They continued to take a stand. They continued to perpetuate this myth, this lie, or to stand for what they knew to be the truth of the Savior, this unshakable faith built upon the resurrection of their friend and their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did the disciples take the body? Why didn't they just give it up? It's because they didn't have it. But let's go on one more step. Number four. The only other option then leaves us with, he was resurrected. He was resurrected. And you say, uh, spoiler alert, we already knew that. You know, we, we, it's why we're here. We've sung these wonderful songs already. It's why we've partaken of the Lord's Supper. We know that. But it is. It's the only logical step when you begin to think about all these other options. He was stolen or he was not really dead. Those things seem a little far-fetched. Maybe, maybe the logical step is he was resurrected. But the question here is, do we believe him? Do you believe that he was resurrected? Uh, When you're presented with the evidence, as many people are, some people still deny, but most of you would agree, well, well, I believe it. I, I believe he was resurrected. I've sung these songs with conviction this morning. I understand the logical arguments we just laid out. I know that he was resurrected. But of course, the next question that comes along is, then has it changed you? 
Have you changed your life at all because of the fact of knowing that He was resurrected? His resurrection means that we have hope. That hope that we just talked about, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 3, that we were begotten unto a living or lively hope. It causes us to not sorrow as others who sorrow when we lose our loved ones because we have a living hope because of that resurrection. His life, and well, let's go back. His birth, absolutely important. It had to happen. His life, wonderful. Inspiring, had to happen. His death, his shedding of the blood might be the most important because we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, the Hebrew writer tells us. But he said, he said he was going to rise again. And what would have happened if he didn't? You see, I hope that you believe the resurrection in the reality of the resurrection this morning. But I have to ask you to go a step further. Has it changed you? His resurrection means that we have newness of life. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, we are baptized, baptized into His death, and just as we do that, we rise to walk in newness of life every day. Not just December, not just Easter, every day. The reality of the resurrection should have an impact upon who we are and the way that we carry ourselves and what we say and what we do. It should be something we consider every day. And of course, because he rose, we know that all will rise again one day. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says that all in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. Because he rose, I can rise and I will rise and all will rise because of the reality of the resurrection. As we conclude our thoughts here this morning, let me ask you to consider this for just a minute. Do you know anybody by the name of Buddha? Buddha's so-called leader of a religion. is buried. There's a tomb. That tomb? Occupied. You ever heard of a person named Muhammad? Most people claim to follow. Muhammad died. There's a tomb. You can look it up. You can find it. That tomb? Occupied. Confu- Confucius? I'm going to be able to say it. There's a tomb. Occupied. Let's go a step further. Joseph Smith? family tomb in Illinois, occupied. Let's go a step further. Dear old Father Abraham, a tomb. It's occupied. Jesus, a tomb, but it's empty. We sang so wonderfully a few moments ago. We sang it, do you believe it? I serve a risen Savior. He lives. Do you believe it? Has it changed you? If you do not believe or do not belong to this risen Savior, we'll be singing this song in just a moment to encourage you that you would make a change and begin to follow Him. You see, here's the other interesting thing. The resurrection is a part of our conversion. As we said just a moment ago, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it is a part of our conversion. We take place, and, and if you have time, look at Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this week or today. It talks about the gospel. What's the gospel? We obey the gospel. We're going to sing to ask you to obey the gospel. What's the gospel? The death, burial, and the resurrection. When we go through our conversion, we are a participant. You've heard me say before that God could have asked us to do anything. He could have asked us to do ten jumping jacks, and that would make us saved. He could have. He could have done anything. He could have told us to travel to Palestine, and we would be saved. He could have. 
But there's a significance in being baptized, not just sprinkled, not just poured, but being immersed as if in a grave, a tomb. And not only that, but rising again. A resurrection of sorts to walk in newness of life. The resurrection is important because we participate in it when we obey the gospel. And how wonderful it is to know that just as He rose, we can rise as well. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that. You've never rose out of the watery grave of baptism to walk in newness of life. We'll be singing to encourage you this morning because it is the greatest decision. What better thing can you do than to participate with your Savior in His death, burial, and resurrection? But maybe you've done that in times past, but you've wandered away. You see, we have to continue to live faithfully. Those disciples had to continue to live faithfully. And this morning, many of you have been baptized for the remission of your sins, but maybe there's something amiss in your life. You realize that you're not living up to that standard, that death, burial, and resurrection, the life that Christ lived. We'll be singing to encourage you as well. Maybe you need to confess sin of a public nature. We're thankful for our good elders who come forward from time to time here and stand so that they can, can pray with you and for you. And the congregation will pray with you and for you because no one has to leave worried, worrying, wondering. But you can go forth with the power of the resurrection as a faithful child of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you need the prayers of this congregation to encourage you because as we've seen this week, it's a tough life. It's been a tough year. Things get us down. But we're thankful that we serve a God who loves us and has offered us this way. We're thankful that we serve a risen Savior. Would you come to Him even now as we stand together and as we sing?